0: Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC
1: happy to have you here. It has been an intense news day. Uh, President Biden today used the word genocide for the first time to describe Vladimir Putin's aims in his war in Ukraine. That is a hefty charge for an American president to make, but President Biden said that today. Uh, The head of USAID, one of our country's most eloquent diplomatic heavyweights, Samantha Power, is going to be here live tonight as our guest to talk about that and more. Um, Today, the lieutenant governor of New York state resigned after he was arrested this morning and charged with multiple federal felony corruption charges. Not to be outdone, the attorney general of the state of South Dakota was impeached today and forced out of office that way after he killed a man in a vehicular hit and run and then just kept driving. Oklahoma today passed a new Total ban on abortion. It threatens doctors who perform an abortion with a decade in jail. It's been an intense news day. We are going to get to all of those stories tonight and more. But we begin tonight in the nation's largest city with a developing story. Because there is still very much a live manhunt underway right now for the person responsible for this morning's mass shooting on a New York City subway train. Uh, The NYPD has just announced this evening that they have a person of interest in the investigation into the shooting. His name is Frank James. He's 62 years old. He's described as having addresses in Wisconsin and in Philadelphia. It's not known what, if any, links he has to New York City. They're also not saying if they believe this man is In fact, the shooter from this morning on the New York City subway. Uh, But he is apparently listed as the person who rented this U-Haul vehicle, which the NYPD recovered in Brooklyn earlier tonight. The key for that U-Haul rental was apparently found at the scene of the shooting. And again, this man, Frank James, is apparently the person who rented that vehicle. Again, he is only described as a person of interest at this time. They are not describing him explicitly as a suspect. The NYPD is asking anybody with knowledge of his whereabouts to please come forward with that information. The NYPD has also said that this man, Mr. James, um, made some concerning posts on social media prior to the attack, uh, posts that were... About New York City, uh, some of which apparently focused on New York City's mayor, Eric Adams. We don't know ex- what, exactly what he said about the mayor. The His remarks about the mayor were described as concerning. And the NYPD did announce tonight that in response to those comments on social media by this man who is described as a person of interest related to the shooting, uh, they have, they say, tightened the mayor's security detail tonight out of an abundance of caution. New York City's new mayor is Eric Adams. He's going to join us here live in just a moment. But as I said, this is still a very live investigation. The shooter is still at large. There's still a lot we do not know. What we're told by police and by reporting from the scene is that it was just before 8.24 a.m. this morning. It was a Manhattan-bound subway train in Brooklyn, just before the train was about to enter a station at 36th Street in the neighborhood of Sunset Park in Brooklyn. An individual who's on board the train put on what the NYPD says appeared to be a gas mask. Witnesses tell the NYPD that the suspect then tossed two smoke grenades, uh, which filled the train car with smoke. Two senior law enforcement officials tell NBC that uh, these bags— And their contents are believed to be tied to the suspect. Uh, You can see some of what appears to be fireworks there. These bags contain more smoke grenades that were not detonated, commercial-grade fireworks, and some fuses. Again, these are thought to be linked to the suspect. They were recovered at the scene. According to police, after he put on the gas mask and he threw these smoke grenades, the suspect then started shooting— fired a Glock 17 9mm semi-automatic handgun at least 33 times. They say 33 times because 33 discharged shell cases were found at the scene, along with a 9mm pistol that appears to have jammed and a number of high-capacity magazines, including one that was inserted into the gun when they found it. You can see here from this cell phone video during the attack that during the shooting... Um, The door between cars, you see the car, the the door in the distance there at the end of the car, that appears to have been locked. Um, The door to get out of the car was also locked. That trapped the people in this car that you see here, closer to the shooter and to the smoke, which is sort of horrifying to think about. The New York City Fire Department handled the emergency medical response this morning. They tell us it was 23 people who were injured in the attack. Ten of those people were shot. Thirteen were otherwise injured, including by smoke inhalation and various other injuries. Amazingly, nobody's injuries are considered life-threatening from this attack, which is just astonishing given what we have seen from the scene. NYU Langone Hospital says tonight that 13, excuse me, 16 patients they treated related to this this attack have been discharged already. They have five patients remaining in their care who they say are all in stable condition. New York Presbyterian says they are currently still treating three patients from today's attack. Those are all also considered to be in stable condition. Again, it is a miracle that nobody's injuries from this attack are considered to be life-threatening. The police say they have not started investigating this incident as an act of terrorism. They say they do not have any indication about potential motivations for the shooter. They say they're not ruling out terrorism, but they don't have any information. They don't have enough information to ascribe any sort of motive. Of course, regardless of the motive, this act definitely did terrorize the people of New York today. Joining us now is New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who joins us live from Gracie Mansion. Mr. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for making time to be here. I know this is a really intense time.
2: Thank you, Rachel. And uh, you're right that uh, although we have not made an official uh, determination of the motive of this uh, horrific act, uh, it's clear that there was a, an intention to bring terror into our subway system and terrorize the lives of those innocent New Yorkers uh, who were merely commuting or carrying out their daily uh, business in the city. And we will catch this person, as I stated this morning. And I want to thank the combination of, of city, state and federal uh, agencies that are collaborating and information sharing to zoom in on him.
1: Within the past couple of hours, we have had the police name the person of interest um, that they've identified in relation to this case, a 62-year-old man who apparently rented this U-Haul vehicle in Philadelphia. They say he has addresses in Philadelphia and in Wisconsin. It's not known whether he has any sort of link to New York. Um, But they did also describe that he may have made social media postings, including some that were concerning postings about you. Uh, Can you tell us—can you shed any further light on that, if, if you know anything else about this Or about his connection to the case, his potential threats to yourself, Mr. Mayor.
2: This moment, um, when you have an investigation this young and this new, uh, there are two goals here that we don't want to interfere with. Number one is to apprehend him. And that is why the police department uh, made the decision to release a name and an image, because he is a person of interest, And number two, not to danger the prosecution uh, if this is the person. uh, We don't want to do anything and release evidence or information that is going to um, hurt the prosecution of the person responsible for these shootings. Uh, It is crucial to us that uh, we move at a very methodical uh, level. The police department is excellent at carrying out this function. And so at this time, only the information that the police department released is something that they want public And the rest uh, they're going to hold on to to make sure when this person is apprehended that he's prosecuted to the full extent of the law.
1: Mr. Mayor, I I think that one of the things that went through a lot of people's minds um, who know New York City well enough to understand a little bit about the neighborhood in which this happened, particularly because of hate crimes, particularly because of anti-Asian hate crimes, um, this neighborhood where this happened, Sunset Park, is a heavily immigrant neighborhood. There's a large Asian population, among lots of other immigrant populations um, in that neighborhood. As you know, Brooklyn is perhaps the most ethnically and and, and nationally and regionally diverse place uh, in the entire world. Is there any indication or can you tell us anything about worries that this might have been um, ethnically motivated, might have been a targeted sort of hate crime or hate hate motivated attack? Uh, I think people surmise that that might be a possibility given the location of this, but we don't have anything to go on.
2: Well, one thing about this city is difficult to go into any neighborhood that you're not going to find a level of diversity, uh, particularly in Brooklyn. Uh, I was a former Brooklyn borough president, and it was a number that I often talked about. 47 percent of Brooklyn I speak a language other than English at home. Uh, this is uh, really what you'll see all over New York City. For those who are not familiar with the city, uh, we do not see any evidence thus far uh, that uh, the perpetrator was attempting to uh, carry out this act based on An immigrant population. But again, this investigation is new and we're going to be thorough to look at all possibilities to determine exactly what motivated such a real sick uh, act on innocent people.
1: Are you f- frustrated, Mr. Mayor, that there does not appear to have been any surveillance footage um, from the station? There does not appear to have been, for whatever reason, any working surveillance cameras at the site of the shooting. We also know that there were no uh, transit police officers in the station where this happened. Those factors obviously are um, a hindrance to the investigation and may have been a hindrance to stopping the crime uh, before it got as bad as it did. Are you frustrated by those factors? Uh, that have emerged today since the crime Uh, happened?
2: uh, No, there's not a level of frustration that has settled in. We are communicating with the MTA, uh, who uh, the agency is in charge of the cameras. Uh, We are communicating with them to uh, identify what happened. Uh, One of the sole purposes uh, for having cameras in the subway system is to identify acts like this. And we pinpointing exactly what went wrong with the feed and they have been extremely cooperative and uh the transit police personnel uh they have been really covering our vast subway system since january uh, 6 until uh, uh, this weekend we have conducted over 265 000 uh, subways inspections complementing uh <coughs> the patrol borough and uh, having them also co- conduct inspections and really zooming in on ensuring the omnipresence that's needed throughout the entire system.
1: New York City Mayor, Eric Adams. Um, Mr. Mayor, first I know that you are um, in isolation uh, at Gracie Mansion now because of your recent COVID diagnosis. We wish you all the best with that. You seem well, sir, and I hope that you are well and you recover quickly. And good luck with this investigation as the attempt to find this person of interest and to solve this crime. Thank you, sir. Thank
3: you. All
1: right. Uh, as I mentioned there at the top here, the basics are that um, the New York Police have identified a person of interest—not a suspect, but a person of interest—in conjunction with this uh, mass shooting on a New York City subway. Ten people were shot, and additional more than a dozen other people uh, injured in other ways in this in this attack. Uh, they are searching for. Um, the perpetrator still tonight. We'll get you more information on this as we know more. Uh, Obviously, in a live and developing situation like this, you never know when developments are going to arise, but we will let you know when we've got them. In the meantime, we've got a lot to get to, to here tonight. As I mentioned, uh, the director of USAID, Samantha Power, one of our nation's most eloquent, longstanding, uh, and bloody-minded diplomats in terms of being um, hard-nosed about human rights um, and about war crimes uh, and about the threat of genocide. Samantha Power, one of our nation's most distinguished diplomats, is going to be here joining us live. She's the former ambassador to the United Nations. She now runs USAID. She'll be with us just after the break. Stay with us.
3: The International Rescue Committee is a critical organization working in more than 50 countries, responding to the world's worst humanitarian crises. The IRC serves people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. Responding within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, they stay as long as needed. Right now, in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine, families are experiencing adverse winter weather like heavy rain, frigid temperatures, and snowfall on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many makeshift camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions. Some people are living without reliable electricity, while others can't afford to buy fuel for the heat source they do have. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild their lives, including essential winter items like emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, winter gear, and cash assistance. For example, even just a $14 donation can provide a temporary shelter for a displaced family. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild.
1: One of the easy and I think basically false cliches about the media, about the news media, um, is that the news used to be way better, that the news used to not be controversial, that the news used to be always spoken in a calm, authoritative voice with no snark and no attitude and everybody agreed it was just the facts, and that's as far as it went. You hear that kind of facile cliche about what the news used to be like. You hear it all the time. You hear even very smart people assert that that was true about the media in the good old days, and couldn't we just go back to that? The problem with that is if you actually go back and listen to what the news was like in the good old days, it blows that thesis out of the water almost instantly. Take, for example, the dripping sarcasm in this newsreel from the aforementioned good old days. Peaceful Finland, that distant northern country of lakes and fjords, of sailing ships and summer bathing beaches, has been invaded and bombed. The long crisis of apparently futile negotiation with Moscow has ended in attack by overwhelming power. The reason for this? The Soviet, a nation of some 180 millions, has been threatened by the four millions in Finland. The huge Russian Air Force, probably the biggest in the world,
0: fears for its very existence. And the Red Fleet, no doubt, has been
1: gravely menaced by Finland's two or three warships. What are the real facts? Ah, the good old days of voice of God authoritative news with no snark, right? The massive Russian Navy, what does he say? Greatly menaced by Finland's two or three warships. The 180 million Soviet people, gravely threatened by the 4 million people who live in Finland. The gigantic Soviet army, the largest air force in the world, threatened to its core by the tiny nation next door, a nation that didn't have an air force at all. That was a 1939 British newsreel, just dripping with sarcasm as to why on earth the Soviet Union felt like it could convince anybody. Uh, That the reason it needed to invade the neighboring nation of Finland was that Finland was some sort of threat to it, when Finland obviously was no threat. I mean, Soviet Union, just like Putin is claiming about Ukraine now, the Soviet Union did claim that they were somehow in mortal danger from the much, much, much smaller country on their border. This country with a much, much, much smaller military, a country that was doing nothing at all to menace its much larger neighbor to the east. Just like what Putin is saying about Ukraine, the Soviet Union said the same thing about Finland in 1939. But the Soviet army did invade Finland in late 1939. And it appears that their plan was to topple the government in Finland, probably in a matter of a few days. They, they thought it would not be hard. Uh, the Soviet military went in by land, by sea, and by air. They used about 100,000 troops which is huge. Their military just dwarfed the military force that the Finns had to defend themselves. And their plan was that the Soviet Union would basically just take Finland install their own puppet pro-Soviet government, or maybe just, just even annex Finland, make Finland part of the USSR, erase it as a sovereign country. And again, they didn't think it would be hard. They thought it would take maybe a few days. It did not work that way. The Finns in 1939 fought them off furiously. I mean, there are, at the time, there were four million, less than four million people in Finland, 180 million people in the Soviet Union, and proportionate militaries to those populations. The Finns were outnumbered. They were wildly outgunned. But they were also resourceful. They were fighting on their own home turf, and they were more motivated than you can possibly imagine. They were defending their homes. That was called the Winter War. It started when the Soviets invaded in late 1939. I'm sure Stalin thought his forces would be home for the new year. Um, Instead, it stretched on into 1940. The Finns wore this remarkable white winter camouflage. Uh, They fought on skis and snowshoes, and they just cut down the invading Soviet forces. (laughs) Finland, in fact, didn't have its own air force at all. But they still managed to shoot down dozens of Soviet airplanes. In one famous battle in central Finland, it was 6,000 Finnish troops versus more than 20,000 Soviet troops. And the Finns just routed them, despite being outnumbered to such a massive extent. The Soviets suffered huge casualties, hundreds of thousands of casualties, ultimately, in their Finland invasion. And the Western world was shocked. The Western world had thought that the Soviets would have won in just a few days, too. I mean, the Soviets thought that, but everybody else looking in thought that. When the Finns put up this unexpected and incredibly effective resistance, they became a cause celeb all over the United States. Even though our government didn't send them nearly as much practical help as they wanted, we still cheered them on. Well, in the end, although it didn't go the way he expected it to at the beginning, Stalin regrouped. He sent in not another 100,000 Soviet troops, but more like half a million Soviet troops to get the job done. The population of Finland was less than 4 million people in the whole country. Stalin had to send in a half million troops to finish the invasion in the end. But the the Finns still fought. They held their ground for weeks, even after the half million Soviet troops arrived in that second wave of the invasion. The Finns were able to hold on, ultimately, for more than a 100 days. And in the end, it did end. Uh, the Finnish government was not toppled. They negotiated a peace with the Soviets. And the negotiated settlement was bad for Finland, but it was nowhere near as bad as what Stalin had intended for when he invaded in the first place and just thought he'd run roughshod over the place. In the negotiated settlement that ended the Winter War, Finland did have to cede about 10% of its territory to the Soviets, which is bad. Um, but they stayed Finland. They kept their independence as a nation. They kept their sovereignty. They kept their way of government. They even got to keep their army. They got to stay who they are. And they also never forgot it. And that history is here to help now. <laughs> that history is newly relevant now, not just because it echoes, right? Not just because the Finns holding off the Soviet invading force feels like history cheering from 83 years back, right, for, for the Ukrainians today holding off the Russian invading forces. I mean, it's relevant today, not only because of those historical echoes. Beyond that, it's also directly relevant because Finland has never stopped preparing for Russia to invade them again. And because Russia invaded Ukraine, support has spiked in Finland and also in neighboring Sweden for those two countries to now join NATO. They never wanted to before, but now they do. One of the million different contradictory justifications Putin's given for why he needed to invade Ukraine, one that you often hear parroted by people in this country apologizing for Putin, um, is this idea that Putin felt cramped by NATO, that too many countries to the west of Russia had joined NATO, they were too close to Russian borders, so he had to invade Ukraine to ensure that Ukraine would never join NATO— He's made this case that, that the, you know, the reason for the war, at least one reason for this invasion, is that Putin couldn't stand the feeling of having any NATO countries right up against Russia's borders. Well, <laughs> congratulations, Mr. Putin. Guess what you got for invading Ukraine? Even if Finland alone joins NATO, you will have just more than doubled the amount of Russian land border with NATO countries. Well done. Sweden's ruling party, the Social Democrats, they've always been against Sweden joining NATO, um, as has the uh, the, the Swedish public. But now both the Swedish public and that ruling party in Sweden have changed their minds. Russia's adventures in invading Ukraine have shown without a doubt that Putin feels free to invade his neighbors that aren't NATO countries. So it makes sense that all of Russia's neighbors now might want to become NATO countries just to protect themselves. In Sweden, the Social Democratic Party put out a statement yesterday that said, quote, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Sweden's security position changed fundamentally. And so even though they have always been opposed to Sweden joining NATO, they're now expected to favor it. And the Swedish government is expected to decide on applying for NATO membership as soon as this summer. Even sooner than that, it looks like Finland is going to make its request to join. And NATO will say yes when these countries ask. One recent poll in Finland shows that even though just a couple of years ago, a majority of the Finnish public didn't want their country to join NATO, since Putin invaded Ukraine, they're sure in favor of it now. The Finnish people are now 68% in favor of joining, and that number spikes to 77% in favor of joining if the Finnish government studies the issue and decides to recommend it. Well, next week, the Finnish government is going to present a security review on this issue to their parliament. A recent survey of members of the Finnish parliament says that uh, of the, the 200 MPs, they've got the 200 members of parliament, 194 are in favor of Finland joining NATO. That's 194 in favor, six against, which means the Finnish government is going to recommend that they join NATO and the Finnish public is going to support them and it's going to pass. And it's going to pass soon, apparently. A former prime minister of Finland tells the AFP this week that it is a foregone conclusion that Finland will request NATO membership and the request will happen within the next few weeks. It'll happen in time for the next NATO summit in June. Now, Russia has responded by threatening that there's going to be consequences if that happens. Consequences, including military consequences, if two new nations join NATO. But these aren't just any two countries. I mean, particularly Finland. Since the Winter War in 1940, Finland has been getting ready for those kinds of threats from this country that invaded them before. And at least now is implicitly threatening that they might do it again. Finland is actually remarkably ready for those threats. In Finland, the country maintains secure stockpiles of at least a six-month supply of all major food grains, things like oats and wheat. They also maintain a six-month stockpile of all major fuel supplies. They require all pharmaceutical companies in Finland to keep secure stockpiles of several months' worth of all major imported drugs. Every building above a certain size in Finland is required to have a bomb shelter. That's on top of a national plan that repurposes underground parking garage and ice rinks and pools into civilian shelters in the event of invasion. In the country's capital, in Helsinki, they have built 10 million square meters of underground space underneath Helsinki proper. It includes, an it's not just like shelters and subway stations, it's an art museum and a church and a huge swimming complex and a mall and a go-karting track. You know, you might need it. Also, a huge drinking water reservoir, all underground, all beneath the capital city of Helsinki for safety. One former defense minister in Finland telling the Financial Times this week how, quote, detailed planning is in place for how to handle an invasion, including the deployment of fighter jets to remote roads around the country, the laying of mines in key shipping lanes, the preparation of land defenses such as blowing up bridges. He says, quote, all armed forces headquarters are located in hillsides under 30 to 40 meters of granite. So they're ready. And here we've got Russia failing in Ukraine. They thought they would run roughshod over Ukraine. They thought they would walk in. They'd take Kiev within days. They thought they would decapitate the Ukrainian government and take over the country in less than a week. It is now 40-something days into this. They are continuing to pound away, having failed in all of their efforts thus far. Their new efforts— That they're apparently just trying to kill as many civilians as possible, trying to just destroy as much civilian infrastructure in the country as they can, while trying to salvage something they can tell their own people was a win. At one level, um, this is all, you know, supposedly because Putin is so sensitive about having NATO get closer to Russia's borders. In the next few weeks, it is very likely that Russia is about to get a new country in NATO with which it shares an 830-mile long land border. Finland is a country that has humiliated the Soviet Union, the predecessor to Russia, in wartime before. Finland has spent the subsequent 80-plus years making themselves phenomenally resilient against any future Russian threat and preparing to repulse the next Russian attack, which they fully, fully expect. How is that going to work out? And again, this is going to come to fruition. This is all going to come to a head within the next few weeks. The United States is the leading military force in NATO. How should the United States be preparing for these eventualities? Today, the United States president, for the first time, said that what Putin is trying to do in Ukraine is commit genocide against the Ukrainian people. It means that he has accused Vladimir Putin of trying to wipe out the Ukrainian people as a people. That is a huge statement from the American president, especially because that kind of determination from the U.S. government brings with it some very serious responsibilities to respond. Last night, we reported here that the Russian opposition figure Vladimir Karamurza had been arrested in Russia after doing an interview with Ali Velshi here on MSNBC and another with CNN about the Russian war in Ukraine. As of last night, as we reported, Vladimir Karamurza's whereabouts were unknown. Today, Russian authorities say they are holding him for 15 days for disobeying police commands. I'm not sure anybody's expecting to see him after 15 days, but that is what the Russian authorities are saying they're going to do. Today is the second day since unconfirmed reports surfaced in Ukraine that Russian forces had used a chemical of some kind in an attack on Ukrainian forces and civilians in the city of Mariupol. Those reports remain unconfirmed today, but even those unconfirmed reports are prompting new questions for the United States and other allies of Ukraine as to what the response will be if those reports are confirmed, or if Russia otherwise does make some sort of move to start using chemical or biological agents as they are traditional military efforts, again, have failed. Samantha Power started her career as a journalist and a war correspondent. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her reporting on genocide, which she called the problem from hell. She then became a senior advisor to candidate Obama and then President Obama. President Obama then named her America's ambassador to the United Nations Samantha Power now serves President Biden as the head of USAID, which is the part of the U.S. government that administers civilian aid around the world. She's had multiple trips to the nation's bordering Ukraine in recent weeks. She's going to join us here live next. Stay with us.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide a half a world away.
1: Whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide half a world away. President Joe Biden speaking this afternoon, it's the first time he's used that word genocide to describe the war in Ukraine. The president of the United States calling something a genocide is a big deal. Last year, you might remember President Biden making huge headlines when he became the first U.S. president to recognize the Armenian genocide more than a century after it happened. One of the people who's been intimately involved in those kind of decisions about that kind of important nomenclature within the U.S. government over the years is Samantha Power, In 2002, she wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book on the subject called A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide. By 2013, President Obama had named her the ambassador to the United Nations. When President Biden took office, he chose her to lead USAID, which is the part of the U.S. government that gives assistance to civilian populations who need help overseas. Samantha Power, in that role, has just returned from her third trip to the Ukrainian border since the war started. She was just in Moldova and in Slovakia, where she's been assisting with the ongoing refugee crisis on the ground there. Administrator Samantha Power joins us live now. Uh, Madam Administrator, thank you so much for being here. It's really nice to see you.
4: Good to see you, Rachel.
1: So President Biden uh, did use the word genocide uh, when describing the situation in Ukraine. He used that word for the first time today. I want to get your perspective on what that means um, for a U.S. president to use that word. Does that change the U.S. posture in this conflict? Does it change our, our perceived responsibilities?
4: Well, let me just say that from the beginning of the war, we've seen two things. Um, extraordinary brutality And I say that as somebody, as you said, who's studied mass atrocities and genocide over time. I mean, I didn't think I was capable of being shocked by the actions of violent, brutal leaders um, and their coldness to human life. But even though we warned that a lot of this was coming, when you see mothers digging their sons out of wells or you see bodies being burnt to hide evidence or just to destroy the the will of families who have to watch it happen. I mean, it is searing. What is happening is grotesque and horrific. At the same time, from the very beginning of the war, uh, in part because uh, Putin projected uh, at least some of his intentions in terms of launching the military invasion and being willing uh, to target civilians and leaders and journalists and NGO uh, professionals, um, we've been working with the Ukrainians to help document uh, the atrocities underway, which started on day one when they began hitting residential areas and, and uh, you know, hospitals and the like. So in terms of the formal legal determination, inevitably that is going to occur in a courtroom uh, or through an elaborate legal process where we gather testimonies, combine it with intelligence where we can show intent to destroy a national ethnic or religious group as such, in this case, a national group, as the president said, that will come. But I think what the president was speaking to is to what we all see with our own eyes, which is intentionally trying to wipe out Ukrainians because they are Ukrainians. And, and I think that uh, was why that determination by him was made. But he was the first to say, look, we have a process. We're building toward, uh, you know, the UN Commission of Inquiry that's been set up. The International Criminal Court has uh, announced that it's opening an investigation. So there'll be plenty of venues to gather everything in one place and run through this. But, but the facts of what we see every day and above all, what the Ukrainians are experiencing every day are plain as day.
1: Given the overall point of this war for Vladimir Putin, the invasion itself, uh, the shifting justifications he's given and explanations he's given for why he's doing what he's doing and the way that he has carried it out, do you honestly think that he cares about being accused of war crimes, that he sees any realistic threat of being held accountable for some type of warfare that might be described as criminal as opposed to the war itself, which arguably is criminal as a whole? I mean, it just, it feels like almost an academic determination at this point, especially for a dictator who doesn't ever plan on leaving power.
4: You know, it's a fair question for sure, because we see the kind of culture of impunity that he's embedded himself in for a very long time. We see the the long table and the yes-men and the sycophants and anybody who... Raises a voice of dissent, whether on TV or in his inner circle. You know, we don't see them again. So, so I hear you, but I, I just offer a, a personal reflection on that question, which is: I got my start in in Bosnia as a as a kid reporter, documenting some of these crimes on the ground, not with an eye to legal determinations, but just as a as a simple uh, freelance war correspondent. And I can say, having interacted with. The, the the big guys of that time, the the, the brutal war criminals of that time, the Rakomlodichs, the Slobodan Miloševićs, the Radovan Karadzichs, you know, names that people aren't really talking about anymore. But they carried themselves in the same way. They sat at those long tables. They, you know, cut people off the air who offered dissenting views. You know, they only surround themselves with yes-men. Oh, you're so smart, President Milošević. You're so this, you're so that. And I never dreamed that history would turn and that these three individuals would end up, you know, in, in, in The Hague, and nor did, did the victims of their, of their atrocities. So it isn't to say that inevitably history will repeat itself, but it is to say that history is long. And sadly, you know, this war, every day that this war goes on, seven weeks, every day that the, the circle of economic consequences combined with the prospect of the sort of damocles in a in a legal sense or in a judicial accountability sense every day that that doesn't impact Putin's calculus in the here and now is one day too many. So we, we all understand that, but I think to think that just because he's at a long table now and 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 looking like he is standing immune to the consequences of his brutality, I think could prove short-sighted.
1: Huh. Um Let me ask you about something that we just heard from the Ukrainian military. I know you just got back from Moldova uh, on the Ukrainian border there. Ukrainian military this week is gave an unusual warning about Moldova. They warned that Russia—they believe Russia may be about to do something in Moldova that they're then going to blame on Ukraine to justify Russia expanding the war and invading that country, too. Basically, they're warning that Russia's looking for a fake justification to keep moving, to keep expanding the war into into neighboring countries that they've had their eye on for a while. What do you make of those claims from Ukraine and from the overall threat that Putin doesn't even plan on containing this just to Ukraine, despite the damage he's already done there?
4: Well, again, one would never wish to underestimate either Putin's brutality or the counterproductive (laughs) decisions he can make uh, in order to set back his own war effort, right? I mean, he has not handled this well, and to sort of create another theater when his troops are not managing in the theater that they are in, other than committing atrocities, um, you know, you can't rule that out, but I will tell you— the same thing I told the Moldovan president and that President Biden and, and everyone on the team have conveyed, which is at this point, we see no evidence of plans of that nature. And we're mm. watching very carefully. If you're Moldovan and you're in you know, a small country of under three million people, already part of your country has been occupied by Russian forces unjustly. Your sovereignty has been undermined. You should know you're led by an amazing uh, pair of uh, female president and prime minister to technocrat, anti-corruption reformers who very much want to integrate Moldova into Europe. Putin hates that, of course. Uh, And they've taken great strides to fight the oligarchs and to fight corruption. Uh, Putin hates that too. Um, so there is a jitteriness, understandably, in Moldova. And again, we can't rule anything like that out, uh, given that Putin clearly has ambitions to recreate, you know, some world that no longer exists anymore, and to impede progress toward European integration for young people uh, and others who want the democratic freedoms, the rule of law. Uh, that, that so many of us uh, cherish. And and so can't rule it out, not seeing it at the moment. Uh, certainly um, our work with, with the Moldovan government right now is aimed actually at focusing on their economic security and stability because they have lost export markets, import markets. Their fuel prices are up 360%, if you can believe it, since the war oh. started. So wow. this is a government that's doing all of the right things. And already the impact of this war, well and apart from any new military dimension to it, uh, is really jeopardizing uh, an incredibly important journey that they are on toward democratic progress.
1: Samantha Power, uh, head of the U.S. Agency for International Development, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Um, It's really nice of you to take time to be here, especially with the intensity of your work right now and your travels. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you, Rachel. we got more... More news ahead tonight. Stay with us. New York State is no stranger to politicians having their careers come to a spectacular, scandalous end. I mean, almost every modern New York political name you can think of off the top of your head You can say that about, I mean, Governor Andrew Cuomo, Governor Elliot Spitzer, Governor David Peterson, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. I mean, there are like wings of state and federal prisons just for New York state legislatures, legislators and and New York congressmen. Getting arrested is like a rite of passage for New York state politicians at this point. Uh, But today we got a new one. Uh, Today, the lieutenant governor of New York, Democrat Brian Benjamin, resigned as lieutenant governor, uh, which is a job he's only been in for seven months. His resignation came hours after he appeared in federal court pleading not guilty to a five-count felony corruption indictment. Prosecutors are accusing him of pressuring a donor to give thousands of dollars to his campaign in exchange for him hooking the donor up with a state grant. He's also accused of lying to cover it all up. Here's how the New York Times describes the sort of meatiest of the allegations. Quote, prosecutors say Mr. Benjamin first approached the donor for help in March 2019, months before Mr. Benjamin announced a campaign for state comptroller. Prosecutors said the donor told Mr. Benjamin he was wary of pressuring his network of donors to give beyond what they'd already contributed to his charity, the Friends of Public School Harlem, a group that organized giveaways of school supplies and groceries to needy families. Mr. Benjamin replied, quote, let me see what I can do, according to the indictment. And then what he allegedly did was concoct a scheme where this donor would give his campaign the donations. He would find some state funds to give to the charity in exchange. There's even a picture of him handing the developer, the donor, one of those giant cardboard checks for $50,000. Even though this is a fairly simple quid pro quo allegation, this latest criminal scandal involving a New York state politician may not end with him. One important thing to watch here is that the indictment hints that this indictment could lead to other indictments, that there are other people known and unknown to prosecutors who are involved in extensions of this scheme. (sighs) Watch this space. One thing to watch for in tomorrow's news, Politico.com has just reported that Donald Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone uh, and Cipollone's deputy, are going to testify to the January 6th investigation tomorrow. That will be behind closed doors. Uh, But with players that important to the story giving testimony, sometimes that shakes loose some news. So we'll have eyes open for that tomorrow. I'll see you right here tomorrow night.
0: The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern on MSNBC.